If there's something wrong with how your workplace is handling COVID protocols, who do you call? Well, you should try the state's Occupational Health and Safety Agency, but you got to have patience and low expectations because they haven't been coming to many people's rescue. And the story's pretty much the same at the state's Unemployment Benefits Division. We'll hear why dysfunction seems to be the watchword. Welcome to California State of Mind from Cal Matters and Cap Radio. I'm Nicole Nixon. And I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. So, Nicole, it looks like Governor Newsom is getting some help from the Biden administration around vaccinations. He's opening two new sites, one in Oakland and one in Los Angeles, right? Yes, but he better deliver on these mass vaccination sites. They have a goal to get around 6,000 doses a day at each of these by mid-February. Um, I actually had a few more questions about how these are going to work, but if you follow sort of the Sacramento Capitol Press Corps, you might know there's been some frustration for a long time about how these pandemic press conferences with the governor go. You know, normally when he's in his emergency operations center in the Facebook Live, if you're a reporter, you have to call in if you want to ask a question, and it's like the lottery if you get called on. It's also impossible to ask follow-ups at these things. So for us, it just means it's hard to get the public clear information about what's going on during the pandemic. And this week, you know, at this mass vaccination site, baseball stadium in Oakland, Newsom had a bunch of public officials behind him, but they still only allowed one journalist in to ask questions. Um, That's something that was just talked about this week that has been frustrating for people for a long time. Well, it seems like everything is pulling teeth with the administration, right? You would think he'd be more open, especially after the criticism he's been dealing with. And in light of the new polls out this week showing his popularity is dipping, including getting low marks for the vaccine distribution. But I'm curious, did the polls say anything about the recall effort? Yeah, one of them did. The poll from the Institute for Governmental Studies at UC Berkeley did ask a question about the recall. It's interesting because it showed that uh, about 36 percent, you know, about one in three people in California say that they support the recall effort. Um, That is pretty much in line with Republican support in the state here, though. uh, Donald Trump got about that much. Newsom's Republican opponent in the gubernatorial election a few years ago, same same story. But 45 percent of people, a few more, said that right now they would not support the recall effort. But again, there's a lot that could happen between now and the recall effort if it does get on the ballot. Right. Things are continuing to change almost daily. It's also not helping the governor that several state agencies that are supposed to help Californians and those who've lost their jobs uh, are in chaos and leaving many Californians in the lurch. Right. As most people know, both the federal and the state governments have agencies that are supposed to provide protections for workers called the Occupational Safety and Health Administration, or OSHA. Here in California, it's called Cal-OSHA, very original. And from the start of the pandemic, coronavirus outbreaks at workplaces like meatpacking plants and hospitals have sickened hundreds of people at a time across the state. And critics say Kalosha's fallen down on the job, that companies aren't following emergency COVID rules and the agency isn't enforcing them. Now, the Biden administration issued new guidance about a week ago calling for more use of masks and other PPE, as well as protection from retaliation for any worker who does raise COVID-related safety concerns. But again, who's going to enforce that? 
Jackie Botts has been covering this issue for CalMatters California Divide Collaboration, and we chatted about this in late January, and I asked her what Cal OSHA actually does. Cal OSHA is the California agency that is charged with keeping workers safe. They put out rules that workplaces have to follow. They educate employees and employers about their rights. And then they actually go out for inspections, often responding to worker complaints, to figure out if all of the right safety guidelines are being followed. And if they're not, they might issue penalties. So let's go back to the beginning of the pandemic. One of Governor Newsom's first executive orders was to prioritize education about COVID-19 over worksite enforcement. Why did he go that route? And, and was it successful? Has it been successful? Essentially, the idea was that these agencies were going to be totally strapped trying to deal with all of the coronavirus hazards and challenges that workplaces were facing. And so instead of actually going out and trying to inspect and deal with every single coronavirus-related complaint or hazard, they went the route of putting out a lot of specific guidelines for how workplaces should be keeping their workers safe, but not actually enforcing those. They were totally barraged with complaints, the vast majority of which were related to coronavirus, and they just simply didn't actually have the staff to, to go and inspect all of those. Katlosha is an agency that was already quite understaffed before the pandemic. It had about a 20% vacancy rate, meaning that all of these inspector positions were just standing empty. Add into that the fact that coronavirus is very scary and confusing and some inspectors didn't even want to go into the field at the beginning. Kalosha simply wasn't able to deal with the volume of coronavirus hazards in the workplace that it was learning about. So Jackie, tell us a little bit about Paz Aguilar. Paz Aguilar was working seven days a week at two fast food restaurants and as a janitor in Oakland when she fell sick with the coronavirus in June. And that was after two of her coworkers had gone home sick, one after having a fever, and ultimately seven employees total got sick with the virus. So did her sister-in-law. And the virus stuck with her. She ended up getting a stroke that kept her hospitalized for an entire month. She's someone who I spoke to who filed a complaint with Kalosha, and she alleged that her managers had failed to enforce the mask wearing and social distancing rules. They had even hidden the COVID-19 diagnoses from hers and others. She, she filed the complaint after she got sick because she didn't want her coworkers who were still working there to have to go through what she had. So she filed a complaint, Jackie, but how did Kalosha respond? Aguilar said that Cal OSHA responded only by sending a letter to the manager of the fast food joint, asking the manager to explain how the issues had been fixed. They never sent out an inspector and nothing more happened. And uh, Paz says that her coworkers say nothing has really changed. Jackie, is what happened to Paz a common thing that you're hearing in terms of employers sort of you know, disregarding masking or social distancing? You know, are you hearing this from workers that there's little regard for some of those rules that should be followed? Yeah, absolutely. I actually scrolled through thousands of summaries of complaints filed to Kalosha that Kalosha only responded to with a letter that described all sorts of situations just like that. 
Jackie, labor advocates fought hard for these new emergency rules. What are they? Yeah, so there are a specific set of rules to protect workers from coronavirus. They include requirements around mask wearing, social distancing, ventilation within workplaces. When there is an outbreak, there are testing requirements and uh, employers are required to make sure that their people stay home if they've been exposed. And they also include requirements around employer-provided housing or transportation that is common within the agricultural industry. Most people know how hard it is to complain about your employer, right? So do you think there are even more workers in danger who are just sort of dealing with the conditions and are not complaining? There are absolutely so many more workers in danger uh, that are not complaining than that are complaining. Um, Workers in a lot of cases, especially low-wage workers, Um, have a lot of incentives not to complain because they really need to keep their job. And even though Cal OSHA does its very best to keep people's identities completely anonymous, workers may still feel like there's going to be some way to figure out that they were the person who complained, and that might mean that they lose job. So that was certainly um, an issue for the migrant farm workers who were living in housing in which Many people were falling sick because they were sharing tight quarters. Um, there were very few comparatively uh, Kalosha complaints filed about these outbreaks compared to how many people were actually getting sick. And this isn't without controversy, right? It took six months for labor advocates to win on getting these new restrictions in place. And employers aren't very happy with them. What do they say about these restrictions? A lot of employers feel that They are very expensive and burdensome on especially small companies. And they say, in a lot of cases, you can't really prove that people are getting the coronavirus at work. In a lot of cases, they're probably getting it at home and then bringing it to work. The other things that they have complained about are that these rules were passed all too quickly without enough public input. In some cases, they say that the rules overstep what Kalosha is able to require. For example, they require employers to continue the wages and maintain the seniority of a worker who has to stay home if they were exposed to coronavirus or test positive. Already, industry lobbies representing retail and agriculture have actually filed two lawsuits against the standards alleging this sort of underground rulemaking process and also specifically in the case of agriculture that the requirements to sort of decrowd employer-provided housing and transportation could totally economically destroy agricultural companies. But it's unclear if those lawsuits will go anywhere. Last month, we know, Jackie, that Governor Newsom released his budget proposal, and he proposed more money for worksite enforcement in in this new year. But I understand California had to reach some goals of its own by 2020 to sort of unlock those funds. So did we meet those markers and get that new money, or what's the status? Yeah, the budget proposal promises funding for 70 new inspector positions, but that's contingent on Cal OSHA filling its goals. Kalosha has actually been shady about what those goals are, but I can tell you that there were 107 job openings posted for Kalosha last week. So they have a lot of work to do in terms of hiring. Thank you, Jackie Botts, Cal Matters Equity and Economic Survival Reporter, for joining us today. Thank you.
Nicole, it's hard enough to complain about your employer or working conditions, but so much tougher if you know that not much will be done to help you. Exactly. Well, coming up, we'll get an update on a state agency that's getting things right. Just kidding. We won't. We'll hear about the (laughs) ongoing mess at the state's unemployment agency. And we'll also ask what's going to happen when all the eviction moratoriums eventually go away. Stay tuned for more California State of Mind. It's California State of Mind from Cap Radio and Cal Matters. I'm Nicole Nixon. And I'm Elizabeth Aguilera. We just talked about one agency that is failing Californians, and now we spotlight another state office that was a disaster before the pandemic, and now there is no word for it. Yeah, Elizabeth, if you lost your job at any point in the pandemic, you have really been out of luck. We're going to take some time this week to revisit a couple big stories we've been following on the podcast. If not everyone in California was familiar with the state's Employment Development Department, or EDD, before the pandemic, they certainly are now from all of these terrible headlines. From clunky, outdated computers that couldn't keep up with unemployment claims to fraud on a massive scale, including some money that went to prison inmates. And we're also going to get an update on the state's eviction moratorium and where that might leave both renters and landlords once this is all over. We're joined by Lauren Hepler, who covers the California economy for CalMatters, and Nigel Dewara, also of CalMatters, who covers the California Divide Project. Welcome, both of you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks so much. So, Lauren, the unemployment fraud scandal at EDD has grown to a whopping $11 billion so far, and they're even saying it could be as high as $30 billion that was paid out in fraudulent claims. And now there's word that some victims of that fraud, you know, victims of identity theft, could face tax bills for this. Give us the latest on what's going on here. Yeah, that's exactly right. I was actually just talking to a lawmaker this morning about the concerns that are kind of rising now about people getting tax bills or even being asked to potentially repay unemployment benefits that they didn't even get that someone may have fraudulently obtained in their name. So we're kind of entering a new phase in this dysfunction where you've still got people who are fighting months old claims and delays, um, people who are missing money on their unemployment debit cards that are administered by the state contractor Bank of America. But now you've also got these kind of forward-looking issues coming into play. So it's a lot for the state and EDD and private contractors like Bank of America to be juggling since we haven't even gotten over some of these issues that plagued us in the early months of the pandemic. Well, what are these, what are these people that are hearing about this and that our identity theft victims actually do. I mean, they're they're not going to be expected to actually pay this, right? Is, or is this going to cause a lot of issues with their taxes this year? There's going to be an unwinding process for sure. This is something that local police have been warning about, that um, politicians at the state level are concerned about, and then it even goes up to the federal level. Ultimately, you're going to have to answer to the IRS. So those are all different channels that people can kind of take to try to work through this if it impacts them directly. Um, But it's also something, um, it depends on the type of fraud that people have experienced. I talked to a woman who's in the Inland Empire, actually, and she is still fighting 
fighting over $12,000 that was deducted from her Bank of America unemployment debit card in September. And since then, she and her son were briefly homeless, living in her fiat, and they're still just fighting to get this money back. The problems with this are all over the place. You have uh, people still waiting for their claims. You know, this is an issue from the beginning. You have people like that woman you just mentioned who are getting their benefits taken away and having to deal with the fallout from that. And then you have people who are, you know, victims of fraud here. What is it going to take for the state to sort out this huge mess so that people get what they deserve and the people who did nothing wrong don't end up paying for it? Yeah, it really is pretty mind boggling when you think about it, how you just laid out. And a couple of big state audits came out last week with specific recommendations for ways lawmakers could institute more oversight over EDD. Um, There's a bill up for the state to immediately change the way it pays out unemployment and give people an option to receive money via direct deposit to their own bank accounts, which I know when I talk to claimants, that's probably the number one thing they want. And then there's all kinds of fraud proposals as well in terms of really shoring up the state's systems behind the scenes. There's also a class action lawsuit against Bank of America that was filed in January. So this is going to be fought in lots of different venues, and it's unfortunately not something that's going to be resolved quickly. Um, I would just flag one other thing. We actually found through a state records request that the state, the EDD, made more than $22 million last year on unemployment debit card fees, and they aren't saying how much Bank of America made. So there's also some really big transparency questions here that have yet to be answered before we even get to enacting new laws and things like that. Yeah, well, I want to turn to Nigel now because uh, Governor Newsom signed a bill extending this eviction moratorium throughout the whole state uh, until June 30th. And there's also some money to distribute for rent relief there. Uh, Tell us what this legislation means for renters and who it applies to, because it's not exactly for everyone. Sure. So this is federal money, $2.6 billion that it's going to the state and the state allocates. It's going to be, uh, if you're a city of 200,000 or more people, the city will do the distribution. If you're not, then the state is going to do it. So that's one thing. The eviction moratorium is related but separate. Eviction moratorium means that people who were going to be potentially at risk of eviction uh, at the end of January, they're going to be at risk of eviction now at the end of June. And what we're probably going to see going forward is more debates and more negotiations to keep trying to push that further down, whether it's going to be an eviction moratorium at the end of the fall or like some uh, legislators want, all the way to the end of the year. I feel like we keep hearing about, you know, eviction moratoriums and rent relief. Nobody's really talking about what might happen when those finally end, you know, when the pandemic ends. It seems like it is a long tunnel till till we get there. Um, But if you are not able to pay rent right now, you are highly unlikely to be able to pay the back rent when it comes due. It's been piling up. When we get to that point, who is on the hook here? Have we have we figured that out yet? Well, it's it's going to depend. Um, certainly at the outset, um, California is a very sort of complicated and delicate system to get people to stay in their homes. And one way you can do that is to pay 25% of your rent, your back rent during the pandemic, either a lump sum or do it monthly. If you've done that and you still owe that 75% back rent, the way this works is going to be converted into civil debt, which means you can't they can't send you into bankruptcy. Uh, you can't be evicted for it. So with this eviction moratorium and 25% down, uh, what it's going to do is to keep people in their homes, which is not what's happening with the federal eviction moratorium. And that's not happening in the rest of the country. So they are going to work as hard as they can to preserve that framework, no matter how many concessions 
the legislators have to give up to landlord associations who are pushing to end this thing and to get the landlords their money. Well, how will landlords recover? I mean, because if I understand it, if they if they do this, then there will be about 20 percent that they just are going to lose. Is that right? Sure. So that goes back to the the, the federal money. The federal money is going to say if you are within what's called 80 percent of the area median income. So that means of the area you're in, if you make about a little less than than 100 percent of the median income, then you're eligible for this money. And what the money is going to do is it's going to be a contract with you and your landlord. You and the landlord say, look, you're never going to get all the money, but here's 80 percent of it that we can give you but you got to give up 20%. Now, I had a good conversation today of how do you know a landlord's going to accept, right? You can ask them and they can tell you, but you really don't know until you come to them with that federal money and say, here's what I got. Will you, you know, can you take this so we can keep going? Does the state have any idea how many people have fallen behind on rent in California? Or like, do we have a grasp of the scale of this problem? We wish we had a graph. What we have are two very, very different estimates. We have uh, estimates from the legislative analyst office, uh, and they say, you know, it's a bad problem, but it's not catastrophic. It's closer to about 400,000 people, and, you know, it's a, a couple of million dollars. Then you have people using the census data, especially at Berkeley, and that asks people, are you at risk of eviction? Do you feel like you've had to borrow from friends? Do you feel like you've had to put stuff on credit cards? And using that data extrapolating, they think the problem is much bigger. It could be 1.2, 1.5 million people. That's a lot of people owing a lot of people a lot of money. I wanted to ask you both about uh, California politics in general. You know, I've been covering this recall effort for uh, Governor Gavin Newsom. We're hearing a lot about pandemic restrictions, things like that driving this. I wanted to ask each of you if there's anything that you're noticing in your beats, um, sort of discontent bubbling up, people talking about the recall in ways that we might not be hearing about day to day. Lauren? Yeah, I mean, definitely with folks who have been unemployed for months and months on end, I think there's very real anger and frustration. There's a feeling that no one is taking the blame for this. No one is stepping up. And some of that is getting directed at Gavin Newsom and the recall is being brought up. Obviously, have to see how many people that turns out to be. The other big group that I'm hearing from a lot are small business owners who are trying to contend with the shifting reopening rules. Um, And some of them are encouraged by the fact that the state is going out and providing these pretty small relief grants of five to $25,000. But there's a lot of concern that that's also going to be kind of too little, too late, um, while Gavin Newsom is trying to generate more goodwill and say, look, the state is willing to help out too. There's a question of whether that's really going to be enough to stave off a wave of commercial evictions or commercial bankruptcies. Interesting. How about you, Nigel? Uh, sure. I mean, we got to put this in context, right? In February 2020, Newsom came out and housing was going to be the order of the day. We are going to focus on housing. We're going to fix housing. It's going to be fine. Then, kaboom, pandemic. So the housing issues we're talking about now are very different than the housing issues we might have been talking about a year ago. That said, where a lot of the discontent comes from is, as you might imagine, from one side, the landlords who were saying, look, we are a powerful organization in the state house in Sacramento. And we are losing money every single day that our tenants aren't paying. And on the tenant side, they believe the state should be handing out more money. People getting money to stay in their homes, people getting money to you know offset the job losses, and people getting money so they can keep paying rent. One more question. I'm just curious what's turning your head in California politics right now. Like For me, my guilty pleasure is reading the coverage of the San Francisco school board renaming a bunch of schools. I just think that that's been <laughs> such a fascinating thing to read about from afar and the backlash to that. Well, 
this one isn't very fun, I guess, but it's affordable housing allocations. Just stay with me. The state hands down these giant orders, say, to, to different counties and different regions, you're going to build 300,000, 400,000 units of housing. And they, they go out there and they zone the places and they approve for high density. Oh, we're going to do it. It's going to be low-income housing. And then no one builds because there's no transit. There's no jobs. And that's been happening cycle after cycle after cycle. And right now what we're seeing is all these cities coming up with these appeal letters to the housing uh, HCD and saying, look, guys, we can't do this. And we're seeing HCD said, Yes, you can. So figuring out where that's going to land and how it's going to work out is something we're watching very close. I mean, I think similar to, to Nigel, I've gone down the rabbit hole of kind of cybercrime. We keep hearing that, oh, hackers did this to EDD. It's hackers and fraudsters and all these terms getting thrown around. But I've been talking to people like, what does that actually mean? And trying to map out like how much of this is potential as like district attorneys are saying this is related to prison inmates and it's related to organized crime and human traffickers. And I'm talking to a lot of people who are casting doubt on that, saying a lot of this was dumbed down mail fraud. A lot of this was very easy things that the state failed to catch. So it's really just kind of like, again, now that we're 10 months, 11 months into this pandemic, like stepping back and saying, what really has happened? And how are we going to move forward from here? Well, Lauren Hepler and Nigel Dwarah of CalMatters, thanks so much for joining us and sharing your reporting. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. I loved your last question, Nicole. So what ideas do you have for renaming schools? Well, I mean, New York City uses numbers. So you have public school 101. But I think it might be hard to have school spirit for a number. So maybe landmarks or or places in the community. Like in San Francisco, you have Coit Tower or Golden Gate. And in L.A., you have the Hollywood sign. We're in California. There are so many fun things to name schools after. That's right. I definitely go with the names of places or objects too, especially nature, like trees, flowers, mountains. Stay away from people because history has proven that's just not a good idea. So how about Joshua Tree Elementary School, Pacific Ocean Middle School? How about Half Dome High? I love it. Okay, Elizabeth, we've just renamed half the schools in the San Francisco School District. So now the school board can focus on its legal troubles since the city sued it this week for not working on getting schools reopened. And that's California State of Mind for this week. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll hear the latest numbers on school enrollment in the state. It's not a pretty picture, and there are serious concerns about long-term effects on tens of thousands of kids who've just dropped off the radar. Nicole, I hope you have a great week. Thanks, Elizabeth. You too. California State of Mind is a collaboration of Cal Matters and Cap Radio. It's edited by Tess Figland and produced by Jen Picard. Sally Schilling is our executive producer. Devin Cortan is the technical director. Chris Hagen is our digital editor. Margarita Noriega and Chris Bruno are masters of marketing. Our social media is run by Emmy Gilbert and Courtney Fong. Nick Miller is editor at Cap Radio and Joe Barr is our chief of content. Dave Lesher is editor at Cal Matters. Our theme song is Melifera Ligustica by Isaac Joel. Make sure you don't miss any episodes. Hit that subscribe button. It's free and you'll get notified every Friday of a new episode. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to California State of Mind. See you next week. Support for California State of Mind comes from Sierra Nevada Brewing Company. Family owned, operated and argued over since 1980. 
proud supporters of independent thought, whether that's in a podcast, on the air, or in a bottle. More at SierraNevada.com. <laughs>